I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So you started doing Zooms for a thousand people a number of months ago, and that must have been a real adaptation. I'm just going to try and crib from you, and maybe there are some folks who are watching this that actually want to. Like, what are the best practices if you're actually going to do a Zoom comedy show for a thousand people? Because that must be a lift. It's not that hard it's just a lot of legwork up front and then basically it's don't touch anything <laughs> once you have the lighting in place and your levels are in place just don't touch it uh but yeah and 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 i have to say like my friend sam Marillo is a comedian he's the one who said you should try it and the reason and the convincing argument this is way back in june I was like, ah, doesn't seem like it's for me. Feels like a hell gig to use the word that I, I used in my Vulture article. And he said, he goes, you know, it's really interesting. He goes, the people who show up aren't just people who are homebound from COVID. There are people who are homebound just from medical conditions in their life to begin with who would never go to a comedy show ever. And I thought, oh, well, that's reason enough. I mean, I then I should try that's a to pretty crack. Good argument. Yeah, I mean, I should try to crack this because if we're if there's a whole group of people who have medical conditions that are keeping them away from live performance, let me let's try to crack live performance. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. Today we've got an incredibly exciting episode. We've got Mike Berbiglia, the comedian on, which I love when we have comedians on because you know it's going to be funny. So you guys are going to have a blast with this sit back lats and have a good laugh with Andrew. I know you will enjoy it. But first, I wanted to do a little crowing. What everybody is talking about this week is what the hell is happening with Robinhood and GameStop and our stock market right now on Wall Street because it's going berserk. And I saw a meme on there that said, like, this is a really great time for people who love to explain things. And uh, you're not wrong because it's complicated, but it's also freaking hilarious to the point where David Portnoy from Barstool, Donald Trump Jr., AOC, and Ted Cruz are all aligned on how absurd this is and how terrible it is. Um, so I wanted to talk about that. But to crow, before we start, for those of you who listen, back on New Year's Day, we did an episode of Yank Speaks. And we brought on, we had myself, we had Andrew, and we brought on our former finance director, Carly Riley, to give some bold predictions for 2021. And a certain someone named Carly predicted that Robin Hood would cause a financial crisis. And here we are, we're recording this 29 days later, 
And it's happened already. She was spot on. So I wanted to bring back the Oracle herself, Carly Riley, back on this pod just to kind of crow a little bit and also explain. So Carly, you were spot on. Welcome. Welcome back. You got a lot of heat on Twitter for this. They're like, Carly, what are you talking about? A lot of people didn't know what Robin Hood was. Are you feeling like you're, did you buy a lottery ticket after this? Like, are you feeling uh, extra insightful? Are you betting now? Like, what's going on? Well, part of my point is that trading in the stock market uh, is always a bit like glorified gambling. So, uh, <laughs> fair enough. So, uh, I didn't need to buy a lottery ticket. I'm still riding my, you're in the my market. Robin Hood. I'm in the market. So, Carly, if you can maybe help us explain this for idiots like me, I'm seeing memes of GameStop and Robin Hood and something called Wall Street Bets. Um, I don't understand them. So take us from the start. Like, what the heck is happening? Yeah. So we could start either on the, the Reddit Wall Street bet side, or you can start on the institutional hedge fund side. Because at its core, this is really a, a war between the internet <laughs> and internet populism and Wall Street. Yeah, um, the people which versus I, the money in many ways. Yeah, and I think what's so cool and so interesting about this, and, and frankly what's probably interesting to, to a lot of Yang fans, is this is this is playing out in all sorts of industries. Like this is happening in politics. Like Andrew Yang's success was a story of internet populism against the establishment. Um, and you, you take it industry by industry, right? In, in, in media, in politics, this is now obviously hitting Wall Street. That's what you're talking about. But so to take it back, I, I, you know, I think a lot of Yang Speaks listeners actually probably are, are more familiar with what's happening with GameStop than probably your, your average probably person. Probably right, but it's still fun to talk about. It's still fun to talk about. I mean, this whole thing is... is I have concerns about it, but it, it's it's just, it's so fun. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. Um, so a lot of hedge funds were short a stock called GameStop. Now, um, what does short mean? Yeah. So short means basically they were betting that this stock would go down in price. Instead of buying a stock, you can borrow it and sell it immediately at that price. And then you have to buy the shares back. And ideally, you're buying them later so you made at a, a profit, lower but price. the idea is you're betting on a stock to go down. That's what a lot of these hedge funds did. They, they do it all the time, right? But GameStop was one they had been shorting very, very heavily. This is actually the most shorted stock of all time. 140% of the stock was shorted. Don't ask me how it works that you so can every, short And that's more because of, of Corona. It's a retail store. Everything's closed. People are buying internet, buying video games online on Xbox. You don't need it, that sort of thing. So GameStop was wildly considered to be not a good company to own. So you have a couple things then happening on the internet side. There's this subreddit called Wall Street Bets, right? And it's a community of people who, like a lot of folks on Reddit, love memes, love that, that kind of internet culture. There's also a lot of really smart people on there too, right? And so that, that, there's two parts to this story. There was a, a legitimate thesis floating around a why, about why GameStop in particular probably wasn't deserving all the shorting it was getting. And that thesis was essentially that Ryan Cohen, the former founder of Chewy, who made like online sales of dog pet food a thing, had bought heavily into GameStop about a year ago and was starting to acquire board seats, etc. So there was this turnaround story that was starting to, to gain traction on the internet. There was a smarter thesis as to why GameStop might actually do well. Then there's the second piece of it, which a bunch of guys in the subreddit, and women, I, I would imagine, started to see what were the stocks that that hedge funds were shorting the most, were betting the most against. And so, and to be clear, if a stock doesn't go down, like if you if you bet if you short a stock and the, instead of it going down, if you're wrong and the stock goes up, theoretically it can go up to infinity, 
So you can lose infinity money, right? There's no ceiling in terms of how much you can lose. So if you really want to lose money in the stock market, usually it's when you're shorting stocks. So, so this group online started to get behind GameStop, both for reasons that they thought were, because they thought fundamentally it was a better stock than the market was suggesting, and also because they saw this very clear opportunity to stick it to these hedge funds that had been shorting the stock and basically make the stock go up instead of down, which is, uh, which is the opposite of what the hedge funds wanted. So this starts to get traction on this subreddit, which now is up to 3 million plus users. And people start buying GameStop in mass, <laughs> which of course drives the price up. And this gets into exactly what Zach says. The mechanics of this are basically, it started going up so much and, and nobody was really selling the stock to the point that the hedge funds couldn't buy back the shares they were borrowing, or if they were going to buy them back, they were going to have to buy them back at really high prices, which was, you know, it, it truly bankrupted some of these hedge funds. So that's called a short squeeze. Essentially, the internet short squeezed some of the biggest hedge funds in the country. And it's this- In the of, world. And they're it, bankrupt. Yeah. They have to put take out a loan. They've lost 141% of their investment. They've lost more money than in the fund. Itself, sorry, that 104% I think is of their total assets. Like it's, they've lost more money on this one investment than they have in the fund. And what's the name of this fund? I can't remember the name of it. It's uh, uh, Melvin Capital and then Melvin Citadel the big gave one. them a loan and they lost the loan. Um, so anyhow, so that's the crux of what has happened and what people are talking about right now. And 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 for, I'm assuming most people are seeing people cheering this because it, it really is this like amazing story of these internet trolls who stuck it to the Wall Street clowns. And there's a couple things about this that I think um, are worth talking about. One is Wall Street is freaking out over this and they're alleging market manipulation by the on the part of the subreddit. They're losing their minds and it's beautiful. They're, they're calling for regulation. And I think this is what is so frustrating to so many people and what's frankly uniting um, you know, elements of the, the populist left and, and elements of the populist right is just the hypocrisy of that, of saying, are you freaking kidding me? The, the, the best tweet that I saw was, oh no, the wrong people are manipulating the stock market. Hedge funds manipulate the stock market every, every this day. is what That's they the do. This is the game. The game, investing in stocks is so rigged at this point, and this can take us into the Robin Hood stuff, but that the idea that they're going to accuse this subreddit, which was doing this publicly, everybody had access to this information, you know, Reddit having really democratized this, is so unbelievably hypocritical. And so it, it just makes it extra fun to watch them lose because- they're squirming. They on, one of them went that. on CNBC and talked about how this is an attack on the wealthy. You're like, yeah, it is an attack on the wealthy. Screw you. Especially wealth where it's just like, Paper wealth, you know, where they're just manipulating a game that only the rich can play and the richest of the rich get to win. Um, anyway, so that was number one, where it's like, boo-hoo, Wall Street. So as a former, a recovering Wall Street analyst, boo-hoo, you got, and, and by the way, these people, they will be fine. They will be fine. Well, and this like, actually gets to that, their I think, third home. the Whatever. other piece that's, that's really important to talk about, which is it's fun to celebrate this. And again, I think that the nuances of this story are what make it so fun. I think a lot, like there were a number of people on the subreddit on, on Wall Street Bets talking about how they had automatic sell orders on at the price of 420.69. Basically, the people who took down like Citadel are like, are like making 420 and sex jokes like in the process of doing it, like they are internet trolls and it's, <laughs> it's, it's so glorious. Um, but, but I think the, the part of this that's important that I see being missed in some of this is like most of these hedge funds and these hedge fund guys are 
are fine because they're also playing with other people's money. These folks are getting their 2% commission on all their assets under management, no matter what. And frankly, when, when the market does go to berserk and when it does like eventually fully crash, because I think there's no doubt we're in a bubble right now, um, which is really what I was speaking to in many ways when I talked about the Robinhood situation back in December, like when, when the market crashes, it's, you know, it's always everyday people who are left holding the bag. Somehow, some way, Wall Street ends up being fine. Um, and I think... That's what scares me about this, right, is there are a lot of smart folks who were on this subreddit and betting in, in GameStop, but you also have folks who are, who are newer investors who don't necessarily know what they're doing, who are betting in it, who are, who are going to be really hurt if this thing collapses. How does Robinhood fit into this? Robinhood is the platform by which many of these traders and traders like myself execute and buy or sell GameStop and a number of other stocks. It's the preferred but, investment tool, a trading app for, for young Wall people, bets. frankly. It's and the Wall Street Bets, though. For Wall Street Bets, yeah, and for Wall Street Bets specifically, right? And, and Robinhood's whole premise was that they were democratizing trading because they really introduced this idea of commission-free trades. So when I was 20 years old and couldn't afford to trade on Ameritrade because I didn't have money and I wasn't going to pay whatever the commission was every time I wanted to mess around by Shake Shack because I liked their burgers, like I got on Robinhood, right? But that comes at a cost, right? Like if you're not, it, you and I were actually talking about this, Zach, right? Like if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Yes. And so- If it's free, you are, the, you are not the customer, you are the product. You are getting, they are making money off of you. And so Robinhood, the way they make money, right? Is they sell your trades, my trades to people on Wall Street to execute those trades. There's a number of ways they make money. They make more money if you trade on margin and they make more money if you trade options, which are both much, much riskier, which is- also what I was calling blowing the whistle on back in December because that scares me because you have folks now trading GameStop, which is a you know a volatile stock, and they're trading it on margin. So they sell your trades, my trades to Wall Street to execute those trades. And there are folks on Wall Street who get a glimpse then at what trades need to be executed before they actually execute them, which means they see which direction. They say, oh, a bunch of people are buying this, we're selling that. And they can jump it, jump the line and in fractions of a second buy the stock before the market moves. Um, so that's just one of the ways that this system is rigged. It's illegal to do this in gambling, um, but it's not illegal to do it in the stock market. Yeah, high frequency trading, that's okay, which is really what we're talking about here. So Robinhood, the trading platform for the people, right? Democratizing, as I said, democratizing trading in, in Wall Street, stock market, uh, bets, whatever, whatever you call it. Because of Wall Street bets, that goes viral. Everybody starts buying games. GameStop, Elon Musk hops on there and is like, Game stocks, like hammering it, like buy and like and paying money to, to, to jack it up. Cause that same hedge fund has shorted Elon Musk and shorted Tesla. Um, so that like all these people are getting involved. Um, GameStop's going through the roof and everybody who's doing it, generally speaking, the vast majority are buying GameStop through Robinhood. So Robinhood, and there's other stops too. It's AMC, the movie theaters, it's Bed Bath Beyond. There's like 13 stocks. And so Robinhood sees this crazy volatility and volume of people buying these 13 stocks. And then what happens there, and this is what I'd love to ask you what happened. So at some point, Robinhood stopped letting you buy those stocks. Is that correct? Is that what happened? That is 100% correct. There, there's a lot to be made of this. So it's worth noting too, that I think it was March 13th, the day like during the pandemic when the market dropped whatever trillion percent it dropped. Robinhood trading shut down then too. And they okay. claimed there were glitches, they claimed whatever. If you are somebody who was buying stock, that was the single best day to get into the market. 
So already there was something people felt like this feels really suspicious or just odd that on the single best day to buy in the market, people who, who get into the market through Robinhood can't participate. So then more recently, fast forward, and Robinhood very explicitly basically shut down buying for these high volatility stocks, as they were referring to them, you know, like GameStop, and said basically all you can do is sell these stocks. Okay, there's a couple things here. My initial reaction to this was like mind-blowing like fury and like, oh my God, like just start the revolution. Because what it appears to be on the surface is holy shit, you're basically saying everyone needs to liquidate their position, which is exactly what the hedge funds need and want, right? Because again, hedge funds need to buy back the shares they borrowed in order to make good on their, their commitments to banks and people that they borrowed the stock from. So they need to be able to buy these shares back. They need people to be selling GameStop, right? And this is basically Robin said, okay, all you can do is sell GameStop. So my mind explodes because I'm like, this feels like the most rigged thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Being the rational Yang Yang person that I am, I'm actively trying to understand if there are other excuses or justifications that Robinhood is able to give for why this is happening. And, and this is what I'm still trying to understand. And, and frankly, I'd crowdsource this and say for those who, who maybe have a grasp on this, please feel free to share on Twitter, wherever, tweet it, me, Zach. Um, I saw a really good thread today that I haven't dug enough into, but but basically, you know, there are risks to Robinhood in terms of like capital they have to put up They'll in go the short term the when the volatility supposedly. gets that big. And and you they truly were facing scenarios, potentially, again, this could all be just what's being said, but they, they were potentially facing scenarios, the volatility this high, um, that that they weren't going to be able to cover certain trades. And, and you know, it was going to basically mess up the whole system. I'm not articulating this well. If you can articulate it better, tell me. No, look, so I think, so Robinhood basically halted trading. So the democratizing trading was BS when the going was good, when the people were actually winning. Like they stopped. And Robinhood is a major Wall Street player. They served the certain masters and they are not democratized. Their CEO did the rounds on the cable news TV the other night and Chris Cuomo, I thought ripped him apart and I'm not, I, I like Chris Cuomo, um, I, but I think he rips people harder than, than others at times, but he was great, I thought, um, saying that you're you're full of it, dude. Like you, and this guy is a dude um, and he's up there saying like, oh, we had a lot of volatility and like we couldn't, you know, it's not good for our customers. No, dude, you're going broke because you serve Wall Street, the way they were, you know, so that, they were, that's they were really losing interesting. money the same way, you were losing money the same way they were. So that's um, really interesting. I didn't realize that he had publicly gone out and, and, and justified this as saying it was because of high volatility. Oh yeah. It was saying like this unprecedented market volatility. And by the way, and that's what Chris Coleman said, this is the job of the stock market, not the broker. Like the New York Stock Exchange job is a halt trading, not the brokers. And that's what's BS about it. Yeah, and, and look, I don't understand why if, if this issue was about them not being able to cover the differences or, or whatever, like why they would only halt buying and not selling. And if the CEO is out there trying to pretend he's doing this for the good of people, that is the biggest that that it truly people should go to jail. If this was not about truly that they they just didn't have the capacity or the whatever to handle this volume of trades or whatever the heck they they could potentially right. claim to justify it, uh, people should belong in jail. This is absolutely outrageous. And, um, uh, you know, I don't understand legally how that would work. Please tell me. But like the, the idea that you are going to shut down uh, retail investors because the hedge funds don't like it. The irony yep. of the hedge funds calling for regulation on this stuff. I, I, it makes me want to just like, when is Elon Musk colonizing Mars? Like, get me out of here. It is it is it is so frustrating. So. Again, two parts of this, very frustrating parts, very fun parts where you can enjoy some of the meme culture that's uh, emanating from this. As a Yang Yang supporter, 
I hope all of you are hammering this on Twitter and loving it on Instagram. Like anywhere you see it, like champion the people. I don't, I will not say, and we are not recommending you buy GameStop. Like I don't think these are particularly good investments at the moment. I think it's crazy. But if you have cash to burn to stick it to a little extra cash, um, they're not donating to certain political endeavors. Um, but if you have cash to burn and you want to stick it to the hedge fund guys, have at it. Um, and Yang tweeted this and I agree. Uh, we were talking about this the other day. He's like, GameStop has changed the game forever forever, Wall Street will have to answer to the people because of how the internet's aligned. Now, I don't know what this means going forward. No one does. The the regulators who don't represent us are going to try and stop it. Um, But Carly Riley, 29 days in, you were right. Congratulations. Thank you. We all bow to you for a quick, you can get my, like I'll tip my cap for whatever, a day. (laughs) I'll take it. I'm still gonna beat you in the long run on this thing. but it's amazing. I hope that guys look broke that down for you. If you want to tweet at us and give us more insight, the situation will have evolved by Monday when this airs. But regardless, it's been joyful in 2020. It's been hilarious. Carly, thank you for joining. Thank you. A pleasure as always. Your expertise. You're now the Robin I... Hood expert. Anytime we talk about Robin Hood, you have to <laughs> that's the deal. It's a funny position I found myself in. Wasn't seeing that coming for I didn't for think so either. Ago. But uh, here we are. Cool. Anyway, guys, Mike Brabiglia the comedian joining Yang Speaks. Have some fun, have a few laughs. Take a listen. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device, you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. I am so pumped to interview for Yang Speaks for the very first time. World-class comedian, thinker, artist, dramatist, filmmaker, Mike Birbiglia. Mike, welcome. <laughs> oh my gosh, wow. That's the most applause I've gotten in nine months. No, I can't believe it because you're a family man like me. And I'm sure every time you come home, your wife and daughter are like, yay, daddy's yes. home. Oh, yes, of course. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. that um, that's the way they greet me, Mike. I get home. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, when I get home, everyone 
completely fucking ignores me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, the pandemic has really driven home a lot of specific uh, family roles. <laughs> and uh, my role is to figure out how to be a live comedian as a job when you can't perform in front of people. And I've done that by having my podcast, working it out, and doing working it out virtually where I do live virtual shows for, I'm not kidding, Andrew, thousands of people. That's incredible. Like on, Val on Valentine's weekend, I'm doing five shows, a thousand people per show. The final show, we're giving 100% of the proceeds to uh, food banks, which is what we do with uh, the f one of each series of shows we give to food banks because as I can tell, you're you're more educated in this than I am, but it seems like food banks are a, are a good place to donate money right now. They're a great place to donate money and uh, thank you for doing it. Um, that is awesome that you have such a following that you can have a show for thousands online. Um, I think you may be singular in this capacity because I, I, I mean, I do know other comedians, but I've not heard of any of them doing anything uh, like that at that level. Um, it must have been an enormous adjustment for you. Like, what was your first Zoom performance like? Because that must have been very, very uh, difficult, must have felt like a real reach. Um, you know, and, and the first time you did it, you're gonna be like, hey, is this gonna suck? Are people gonna be like grumpy that there was actually money involved? <laughs> that was a huge concern. I remember it was in, the first thing I did in the virtual space was I, 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 I actually wrote about this for Vulture this week. I wrote this, this piece called Hell Gig. And it's all about when you start out in comedy, you're performing in bowling alleys and gymnasiums and cafeterias and like literally anywhere, which by the way, running for president, I imagine you find yourself in some hell in gig. bowling alleys yes, and yes. Uh, yeah, like nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not that dissimilar. And, uh, and so in the world of virtuals, it's similarly sort of a hell gig. It's like, it's not the best sound quality. It's not the best lighting. It's not the best way to connect. But what I found was, is uh, I was driving to a comedy club in March and listening to NPR, the epidemiologist, and they were going, you know, uh, this isn't looking great. <laughs> that first hint of like this. I remember those early days in March, it felt like a zombie movie. Yes. Where you're getting the news reports being like, and like yes. this is shutting down. And yes. you might want to like, uh, yeah, like that, those were very, very. Yeah. The toilet paper days. Yes. The where do you have enough toilet paper days of the pandemic? And uh, I was driving to a club in Buffalo and I got halfway there. I got to Ithaca, New York, which uh, which is a great town. And, and you, were, you were driving from Brooklyn at the time. Yeah, right? from Brooklyn, where I live in Brooklyn. And uh, and then I sat. I went. I remember this really well. I always love to go to local pizzerias. So in Ithaca, there's a place called Thompson and Bleecker, and it's phenomenal. And they have a communal table because I was alone, so I'm just like eating with strangers. And uh, and they said, we're getting worried about this virus. We were listening to Joe Rogan and he's where, and I go and I, in my, in that for me, I was like, I'm going home. They were like, I was like, to me, when the Venn diagram of Joe Rogan matches up with NPR, it means 
there's something of a national consensus and I'm out. And then the first virtual thing I did was me and Roy Wood Jr. got on the phone and we said, what can we do for comedy club wait staff? Because this is going to mean no job. A total wipeout. Yeah. And so we came up with this thing called tip your wait staff. It still exists. Tipyourweightstaff.com, which all it is, it's not, you know, I don't have a nonprofit. It just houses uh, GoFundMes for comedy club wait staffs across the country. And cumulatively, they've raised about three quarters of a million dollars. That's incredible. Um, thanks. Oh, applause again from the Yang family. Yes. Welcome home, dad. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but I will say like, I, I think that's where some of your interests and my interests intersect and why I really respected you as a presidential candidate. I'm convinced that the parallels between comedians and politicians are sky high. And I can describe my day-to-day -day life as a candidate, which would be incredibly familiar to you. It's one reason why I like comedians and get on um, well with many um, of your colleagues. I feel like you get America, you get people in like a different way than other folks. Cause like you've seen so much of the country You've been in front of yeah. crowds of like completely different types of people in different places at night. They just come to have a good time. Yeah. I mean, I always make this joke that people call me on social media, a coastal elite, just because I live on a coast and I'm better than other people. And and, and then I, but I point out like, I'm not a, co I'm quintessentially not a coastal elite. How many people do you know have lived in, you know, performed and worked in 45 states for God's sakes. Like I've, I've seen the whole country. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not cut off from people's lives. No, you, you can't be. And even your description of what for you is like a fairly normal gig is like, Hey, I'm going to drive to Buffalo now. I'm going to stop in Ithaca, get my like pizza fix on the way and then drive another three hours and then yeah. perform in Buffalo and then stay overnight in Buffalo and then maybe do another, like, you know I mean? That's like just normal stuff, at least in good times. Um, and for me running for president, it was wild, Mike, because there were uh, a few different things I was trying to make happen at once. Uh, but a lot of it revolved around whether I could get people in Iowa, New Hampshire uh, behind me. And yeah. so I would be in Iowa, New Hampshire and anyone who would have me, <laughs> I would be there. It'd be like, hey, you know, we're having like a backward barbecue there. Like, hey, I'm like I would just show up and. And then uh, I would, you know, talk about uh, like automation and my vision and the rest of it. Um, and it, it was, I think, very similar to what uh, performers or comedians would do is where you go to a small town, there's a small crowd and like you kind of work your way up. Um, and, and so I had to work my way up in those environments. Uh, and I used to tell people, and this was more or less true, I was like one Iowan or one New Hampshire um, voter uh, was like worth like a thousand Californians was my joke. That's very um, funny. You yes. Know? <laughs> yes, yes. And it is. It's pretty close. Yeah, it was pretty accurate. Um, so if I went to an Iowa backyard barbecue and there are six people there, I'd be like, 6,000 Californians. This is like a giant crowd. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, my experience of driving through the country over the years, I mean, I've been on the road for 20 years. You know, like I, I started at 22 driving around the country in my mom's beat up Volvo station wagon. I put about 100 something thousand miles on that car. And, uh, my experience has been like I, when Trump came along, I was not surprised that his message of American carnage and all that stuff was resonating because I was I was seeing the country and going like this country is really struggling. So he's speaking to a thing. The problem is the way that a snake oil salesman does. He was selling a thing that doesn't fix the problem. Yeah. 
Uh, I had the same experience running a nonprofit I started called Venture for America, not as broadly as you, where I didn't go to 45 states, but I went to maybe 18 states, uh, sure. including Alabama, Louisiana, yeah. Missouri, uh, Ohio, Michigan. And I saw the struggles. Um, and it's one reason why I became convinced that we needed to think bigger about what an economic solution could look like. Uh, and especially when you looked at the towns that had gotten completely blasted by the decimation of manufacturing jobs, like you go there. And so like I'm a serial entrepreneur and I was running an entrepreneurship organization and entrepreneurs are generally very can do and positive. So you're like, hey, you know, let's do something let's start businesses. Let's like make, make something positive happen. And you'd go to a depressed area in the Midwest and the South and you would just feel like, 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 hey, whatever I was going to say, like, I should probably rethink it for this particular group and environment. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Being a road co comedian over the years, seeing the country has actually been great as an artist because it's forced me, similar to what you're saying, it's forced me to focus on what's human about what I'm saying instead of what's referential, what's a cultural reference that might play in New York. You know, they always say like, you know, New York comedians will show up places sometimes if they're too insular and they'll talk about the subway for 20 minutes. And people are like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> um, and and it, and it is good to sort of see the country and, and understand like what people's lives are like. Yeah, completely. And that, that was what drove me. Um, I'm convinced that eventually a comedian is going to run for office very, very successfully. Um, so I don't know if it's going to be you, Mike. I don't know if it's going to be someone else. I don't think I have a thick enough skin. You folks take such a hit in this way that's so personal, I find. They take such personal shots at you, and I feel like it's so unfair. Well, I guess you would understand it better than most, uh, you know, as someone who puts yourself out there all the time. Um, certainly, I do feel a lot of respect for folks who run for office because they do take a lot of shots. I think it is worse for women. Uh, you know, I think it's yes, uh, for sure. Uh, it's it's worse for um, people of color or pretty much any yes. marginalized group. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's rough. And like because you're running for office, people have a license to uh, say whatever they want <laughs> about you, more or less. And then you you you're you know you have to uh, um, take it in stride. I was just going to make a sports reference that if you had like a number one draft pick. Sure. For comedian as political figure, yes. <laughs> like, like someone who could like <laughs> run for U.S. Senate. And for people thinking about this, like Al Franken yes. uh, did it out of Minnesota. Like he was yes. you know, an SNL comedian, very, very smart, yes. uh, you know, like served as a senator for a long time. So this to me is more or less inevitable <laughs> that there's going to be a high level. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think a John, Mul I think a, a John Mulaney or a Dave Chappelle or an Ali Wong could run, and just just by virtue of their pure skill with people, would have a ton of traction right out of the gate. So certainly Dave, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. Certainly Dave. Um, John Mulaney makes sense to me. Um, Ali Wong also makes sense to me. I hadn't thought of her, but that's a great, great suggestion. Yeah. Yeah, I guess those can be the the top three draft picks. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you put you could put me in the mix. At one point, when Trump was when Trump was first elected in sixteen, we my wife and I were in such a, a spiral of like, what the hell is going to happen to the country? That I literally said, 
I may have to run for public office. And I and it wasn't out of any sense of I wanted to. It was <laughs> it, it wasn't was, out of any sense of desire. No, it was, like it was completely obligation. It was simply like someone has to do something. This is a debacle. And that's when I actually started doing this whole thing called I started doing a tour called Stand Up and Vote. And we go to colleges and we put on essentially free shows. We give the proceeds to Headcount and Rock the Vote and Vote.org. And it was like, you know, we've had, you know, John Legend and we've had Roy Wood Jr. And we've and John Stewart did one of them. He came to Princeton with us. And, you know, we've had like all these great people. We're going to do it again in 22. We're going to do it again in 24. I mean, like, I mean, I think voting, I think one of the upsides of, of this election in 20 is the voter participation being so high. And then I think that one of the things that's scary is how many votes Trump got. It's awesome you got activated, Mike. I mean, I felt the same way. Like, I never would have run for president if Trump hadn't won in 16. Um, and you and I were in touch uh, around trying to activate voters in Georgia, like when we were trying to flip the Senate and, you, you know, you were trying to activate young people. Um, so it, it's awesome that you've driven so much energy um, to voting among young people who we all know don't vote at the same levels as uh, we, we'd like in a lot of cases. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. If Dave ran for, like, Ohio Senate, he'd probably win that thing. <laughs> I think he'd win. I think, I think he'd win for sure. Yeah, no, I agree with you about Chappelle in Ohio. I mean, I feel like... That would be open and shut case. I think he could run for anything in Ohio because he's lived there for 20 plus years. I mean, he, you know, Dave is the first guy I ever, I ever opened for at the Washington, D.C. Improv. Really? <clears throat> yeah. So you were a Georgetown student. Did you just like yeah. show up and uh, do, do an improv? Because Dave yeah. has deep roots in D.C., obviously. Yep. So I, 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 I uh, my freshman year, I showed up at Georgetown uh, and I, I had, I'd wanted to go to Harvard because it, to follow in the footsteps of like Conan O'Brien, like I always thought, like that's you go to the you write for the Harvard Lampoon, and I thought, and then I got, and you know, and then I got rejected from Harvard. I actually had a ridiculous interview for Harvard where 
the woman who was interviewing me goes like, why would you, why do you want to go to Harvard? And I go, I want to write for the Harvard Lampoon. And I pull out a binder of comedy writing I had developed over four years. This, this would either be a home run or a total strikeout, depending upon the interviewer. <laughs> she was a, she was a lawyer. She had no interest in humor whatsoever. She, and then, and then this has put the nails in the coffin. She goes, uh, is there any other reason you want to go to Harvard other than to write for the Harvard Lampoon? And I said, uh, no, that's the main reason. And, and so, and clearly it's a huge mistake. It's a huge tactical error, but it was honest. You had passion, you had direction, you had a yes. clear vision. I love it, except this young man. Now, um, <laughs> like that, that's where I would have gone. But then I went to Georgetown and I, was, I, I auditioned for the improv group. I got in. I, I spent four years with those guys, including like Nick Kroll, who I, I cast in the improv group. And he cast John Mulaney. So there was like a lineage of Jack, and Jacqueline Novak, too. So there's like a, a really bunch, good bunch of comedians who came out of there. And before me, Jim Gaffigan went to Georgetown. So there's a whole wow. bunch of... Wow, you have yeah. like this whole um, like chain of uh, yeah. Georgetown comedians that kind of trained each other, came up together. There's a, yeah, and actually Jim and I were talking the other day because we last year John and Jim and I did, we raised a million, believe it or not, we raised a million dollars for the Georgetown Scholarship Program which is for first generation college students. Good for you. Uh, and and we're doing it again, God willing, in the fall. And so Jim and I were conspiring about that the other day. So anyway, I I I entered the funniest person on campus contest at Georgetown as a sophomore, and I won. And one of the prizes was to perform at the DC Improv, and they showed me who was coming soon. And I looked, and I saw Dave Chappelle's coming, and it was this is before. You know, this is around Robin Hood men in tights. You know, I mean, it wasn't like he had. It the wasn't Chappelle, Chappelle show. show yet. Yeah. I, yes, and I and I was like, I, but I love Dave Chappelle, and I opened for him. He was so nice, and he's you know, I find him to be one of the nicest people I've encountered in comedy. He's he's an incredible human being, and he has this energy about him. But also at this point, like this extended family, um, where and and also his real family. But you know, so you you go and there's just so much love and warmth. Um, I remember when I was in Ohio. So one, they have these, they, they have these Camp Chappelle t-shirts yes, and gear. So it literally felt like yes. you, know, you were at summer camp. Yeah. Um, and, and then just walking around uh, like the house where there's barbecue after. and But it, it just felt like the chillest uh, college house party for adults <laughs> that you could imagine. And, and for me at this stage too, Mike, I'd spent two years running for president, two years plus. Um, and then, uh, you know, we were all um, isolated for COVID. And then I went to Dave's birthday party. And so it, it was like my first brush of just being like a human talking to other yeah. humans in years. Yeah, <laughs> it was years. Um, and they they tested everyone when you landed. So, you know, there was like a high degree of uh, like visibility that, you know, everyone had a bracelet and like, you know, you got tested every day. Wow. Um, so So there was a sense that uh, you know, you could relax a little bit. That's amazing. It's interesting. Like, man, you ran for president for two years and it's like, where does the fire come from for you to show up every day in a different diner, gymnasium, cafeteria? Like that is hard. A bunch of strangers. You don't know anybody. You got You, you have to bring the energy instead of them. Yeah. That, thank you for, um, 
recognizing <laughs> the, the reality <laughs> of the situation. One of the things one of my mentors early in my career in my 20s said to me that really stuck with me. He said, Andrew, uh, it generally takes five years to know whether something is going to actually work. Uh, so if you're not willing to put five years into it, then it has no chance and you have no chance. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> wow. That's, that's profound advice. It's very, very big advice. 100% true in comedy, by the way. He said, if you're excellent, maybe four years, but like for the most part, you're not going to know whether it's working um, until five years in. Uh, and so I, I took that advice to heart. Um, and, you know, I've started a number of organizations. Uh, I've run a company. Um, and when I embarked on the presidential campaign, I said, okay, hell or high water, I'm going to grind until uh, the voting is on and like, God willing, I'll be on the ballot. Um, and the first thing I did, um, no, maybe the second or third thing I did was call friends and ask them to donate to my campaign. Yeah. Um, and as soon as you take money from your friends, <laughs> like you better it's fucking follow thing. through. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's it's the whole like, thing. like, and, and sure for some of them, maybe like the money they donated wasn't like, you know, make or break for them or whatever. Um, but this is true also in business where like, if you take someone's money, then you got to bust your ass and fight it out and then win or lose. At least everyone who backed you will be like, okay, like I see you left your, uh, heart, um, on the field. Um, and so when I embarked on the presidential campaign, I looked at the calendar and was like, I am going to bust my tail as hard as I possibly can, uh, for the next two plus years. Um, and, you know, try and get on the debate stage, try and get on the ballot, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so no matter how bad the days got, um, like one of the advantages to all of this was knowing that there's actually a finite time frame. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's something that was actually a huge blessing relative yes. to, for example, like a lot of folks who are in your field where uh, you don't know what the like time frame is. You know, you're just yeah. going to like go yeah, and yeah. grind it out. And and uh, and so if I were to tell you like, hey, you're going to have two very, very difficult years, um, you could probably do it because <laughs> you look up and be like, well, you know, I've done, uh, you know, things I've like this for a longer period of time. And yeah, yeah. I've done plays. Yeah, sure. Two, yeah, I, I see what you mean. There's a finite amount of time. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's really it's really admirable. I mean, I feel, yeah, I, I mean, I feel very lucky. And I think my I speak for my my wife and I after inauguration that that we were able to get someone out of office who is seriously I, dude, I would, it I was would, so close too Can yeah it was so close shit? who I who I would argue is the least patriotic president we've had in the history of America and it was so close and it was so close <laughs> no it's so close <laughs> I mean we got really lucky and also it was an extraordinary amount of legwork from people like you know you talk about someone who who really took what she was given in terms of a situation where like Stacey Abrams had that election stolen from her and then instead of saying I'm gonna run for senate I'm gonna run for president I'm gonna run for vice president she goes no no I'm gonna try to fix the voting situation that actually worked against me in an election I should have won yeah, and holy cow, did we all benefit from her work because oh my you, know, God. Then you flip the Senate. Um, and campaigning in Georgia with Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff uh, was tremendous. Like, uh, And it was made more tremendous by the fact that they both won. I mean, that was like the greatest thing yes. in the world. 
and and talking to each of them afterwards it was so happy mike <laughs> was, yeah i bet so oh happy. my gosh wow and stacy abrams 100 percent um you know helped make all that happen i mean if she doesn't do the work she does then um probably lose those races Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. It just seems like voting is such a massive, massive uh, challenge that our country is going to be facing for the next few decades. I'm actually deep into the weeds on this stuff, Mike, because um, like the closeness of this race uh, really affected me. Um, And one of the things that happened during this cycle was I supported several dozen congressional candidates in um, some districts that frankly were, you know, almost certainly going to be won by Republicans, uh, but some that I thought were legitimate swing districts in yeah. places like Ohio, North Carolina, yeah. Texas, California, um, like Western New York. Um, and uh, by and large, uh, the Democrats lost those races um, and not not by a, like a slim margin, like convincingly. Yeah. Yeah. It was a terrible, terrible feeling, Mike. Like yeah, seeing these candidates that I got to know, um, I personally contributed to each of them um, and I, I did everything I could to help them win and then seeing them get blown out in many cases. I'll give you one example of someone that folks might know. Uh, J.D. Scholten, who ran for Congress in Iowa, uh, came this close to beating Steve King, who was like this, you know, rancid. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Like, like, And so everyone loves J.D. He comes back and runs again and loses by like a very wide margin, which was wow. such a shocker. Um, and, and so digging into the numbers around what's happening around the country, uh, like we are going to be faced with this real polarization yeah. for ever, really. Like, and, and there are a bunch of structural reasons behind it. Um, there's, there's this thought that we have that uh, because of changing demographics, like everything's going to go blue eventually and the rest of it. Right. Um, but the, the way our system is designed um, you know, one thing I saw is that Republicans right now represent 42% of Americans by population, but yeah. like 50% of the Senate. Or, you know, that sure, is an example. Of course, just of course. Because you have less populous states. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, and so there are these real structural issues that are going to get worse, not better. Uh, and um, one of the things I think can help, and I'm going to be making the case for this in a very big way. Maybe you'll help me. Maybe I can convince you that sure. this is like, like an answer is ranked choice voting. I completely agree with ranked choice voting. It's the best way for the most reasonable and popular candidate to win. If we get ranked choice voting out to enough places, I think there's a chance that we can bring people back together. Because right now, the polarization dynamics are getting stronger, not weaker. And and I'm happy to say that there are a couple of states now that have ranked choice voting. Um, Maine and Alaska. (laughs) Yeah, Maine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say Maine. (laughs) Alaska just got it. Way to go, Alaska. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. You, you know what was tough, Mike, and I hope this changes. Uh, your native Massachusetts actually voted on it in November. 
Oh. Um, and it did not pass, but I'm convinced it didn't pass because there wasn't enough education uh, behind it. About it, yeah. Yeah, because people just, you know. Bleh. So uh, so rank choice voting is a system where every voter shows up and you can rank typically um, any of your top three candidates. Sometimes it's top five, sometimes it's top three. Um, and then uh, if no candidate gets over 50% of the uh, first choice, because if, if over 50% of people chose someone as a first choice, then they win it in any system. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, yes. But if no one has 50% on the first vote, then what they do is they look at the candidate with the least number of votes. And then they look at those votes and then they say, OK, who's your second choice? Yeah. Um, and then they reallocate uh, the, those voters to their second choice. And then they repeat the process until someone breaks 50% uh, or 50.1%. Um, and, and this has so many positive effects. Uh, it makes it so that you can vote for whoever you want and there's no worry about like wasting your vote or being yep. a spoiler. So if yep. you really like that person, you can just go ahead and put them first and then put the other person second. Um, it it d- diminishes the incentives to uh, negatively campaign because if I trash you, then we both kind of look terrible and then this third place person. Oh, that's nice. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Like you said, it actually rewards folks that are more about building uh, broad appeal and consensus and less like people that are, that are um, extremist or flamethrowers. If there was ranked choice voting um, during, let's say, for example, the 2016 Republican primary, Trump does not win, um, no. as an example. No because, way. Or because over 50% of the folks that were looking at him were like, like it, it was like very much binary where it was like, yes, Trump or no Trump. Yes. But yes. if you like stack together all of the no Trumps, uh, he probably does not become the nominee. So, so that that's an example of something that ranked choice voting can facilitate, and it makes our democracy more dynamic, more responsive, more genuinely representative of the preferences of voters. Uh, it makes it so that smaller candidates have a better fighting chance because you know, like again, there isn't like a waste your vote argument. Um, so, I'm a huge fan of this, and I'm actually going to be trying to make it happen in more states aside from Maine and Alaska, uh, because there are 25 states where you can actually just have a a uh, bunch of signatures and uh, and have like a vote on it. Wow, that's incredible! It's yeah, huge. It's, it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, so so if we get it out to more of these states, and then if you're in a state that doesn't have it, you're like, wait, why are these other people have this cool voting system and I don't? Yes. Like that, yes. that, that kind of you know. And then you can just peer pressure. Yeah. More and, and more uh, energy around it. So this is going to be a big mission of mine because I think it can help reduce the polarization um, that's kind of structurally baked in at this point. Speaking of another state that's cool and underrated, I would say Alaska. I have not spent as much time there. Tell, tell me more, Mike. <clears throat> so like Alaska has a few towns that are spectacular. I mean, Fairbanks, Seward. I mean, there's some of the prettiest places you've ever seen. And in, 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 I mean, the, <clears throat> the Seward... The Seward National Highway, which runs from Anchorage to Seward, it's uh, wildly uh, scenic and spectacular. And it's just, you know, they say they always have these, you know, you, you tour Alaska and they have T-shirts that say, I think, the last frontier. And, and it really, it, you really do feel like that when you're there. You go like, I can't believe this is also part of America. <laughs> I feel that way about, there's a there's a handful of other places like that. Montana's like that. Wyoming is like that. There's a handful of places in America you just go, I can't even believe this is also, this is also, we have this. And I find the people in Alaska to be very sweet. And I, and they also, by the way, low, you know, underrated states, Maine. Maine's a great state. It seems like you're a nature lover. Um, I Mike. do. Yeah, I the- love it. 
the main thing I, I know about Alaska is that everyone there gets, uh, you know, $1,200 a year in oil money from. <laughs> yes. Because nice that, that's like a precursor that's like the original to the UBI. universal based yeah. income argument yeah. I was making all the time. It's like, look, doing it in Alaska, oil money, everyone gets it, everyone loves it. Um, and, and so then I was making an argument that, like, data is the new oil. Like, yes. you know, we can do this for everybody. The universal basic income to me, it felt like this thing where for the first time someone's saying something that's so obvious and yet no one's saying it. Yeah, and, and it seemed obvious and yet uh, very marginal at the same time. Um, but then the marginal became mainstream over time in part because of the terrible circumstances. I think that's right. And I think like, I think you did a huge service to the country by making that a mainstream discussion point because, and, and that's why I was always drawn to your candidacy because I was like, I was like, finally someone brings up a thing that hasn't been a discussion point for 30 years and just says, you know what? Let's take seriously this idea that robots are <laughs> robots are taking our jobs a lot more than immigrants are taking our jobs. Yeah. And we're seeing it now with the pandemic. I mean, uh, think about all of the things we're doing remotely and technologically. Um, I'm really grateful that we we're able to mainstream cash relief. And as we're having this conversation now, Mike, 85% of Americans are for cash relief during the pandemic. 55% yes. are for recurring cash relief forever, otherwise known as universal basic income. Yeah. Uh, we already got checks of 1,200 and then 600, and they're looking at another 1,400. Yeah. Uh, there are dozens of members of Congress who are like, look, let's just do this ongoing. Um, and on the, the flip side, you have the servers that you're trying to help and like the food lines for miles yeah, I know. Uh, all, all over the country. So this is really a time when the solution is right to meet the need. Um, and I'm grateful to everyone who supported my campaign and helped drag this set of ideas into the spotlight because it was very uh, touch and go for a while. You know, like when I was running in 2018, it wasn't like everyone was like, yeah, <laughs> like, like, totally. let's discuss this. <laughs> no, totally. And it was like, it was, uh, it's so funny because there was a point at which it's obviously so contentious. I can't even imagine the kinds of sort of like insults and things people have hurled at you in the social media space because people hurl stuff at me for saying positive things about you. <laughs> like, oh, oh, really, Mike? Thanks for sticking up for me. I appreciate it. Certainly social media um, like, is uh, sometimes not the place where you go to feel good about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say almost never. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I want your tech Silicon Valley friends' ears in terms of like, like how can you bring jobs to Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio. I mean, what are we doing here? These are great states. How can you, how are you not building, you know, uh, how are there not offices there? How, how come there's not a headquarters there? I have friends who are working on that very problem. Um, you know, that they, they've opened some branch offices in Michigan and similar argument. Why is it that Harvard University has a satellite in Beijing, but not Ohio? Wow. Uh, especially because yeah. Harvard is getting the equivalent of like hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks from the national government. And I have a feeling that just about every American would prefer that Harvard actually open a satellite somewhere within the continental U.S. Uh, and Absolutely. Not Dubai or wherever. Yeah. And by the way, like these states are phenomenal places to live. I've ha- I remember talking to a Silicon Valley fancy pants person once about this idea and do you want to name names (laughs) no way no way not a chance um the uh but i but his argument back was all these all these silicon valley companies are gunning for the same talent like draft picks to get back to your football analogy they're gunning for the same first round draft picks out of out of these top schools and it's easier to convince them to move to the Bay Area than it is to convince them to move to Ohio. And and sometimes they're trying to draft internationally, too. It's one reason yeah. why a lot of these companies actually just set up an outpost in Asia or Eastern Europe, because uh, they're just trying to get the talent and they want to set up shop someplace where the talent is willing to come. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes they'll just go to where the talent is. Um, but that that is the game um, in tech for sure. Uh, there's this real winner-take-all dynamic, um, and it means they're going to throw money at smart kids out of certain schools. Um, it, like I spent years trying to counterbalance this with my organization, Venture for America, because I thought that there's going to be this massive talent drain um, to certain markets and not others. And so I was trying yeah. to send folks to uh, the Detroits, the New Orleans, is yeah. the Baltimore's, the Clevelands. Um, yeah. yeah, spent six years doing that work. Uh, that's wow. when I saw the, the parts of the country that uh, you know, like that uh, you and I are comparing notes on. Yeah. The other another gem is Boise, Idaho, I always say. Oh my gosh, they're trying to get uh get me to come. I never made it. I'm sorry, Boise. I have a funny story about Boise, which is there's this great uh breakfast spot there called Goldie's. And uh and and you know, when I show up when I tour, I always uh I try to come a day early or I come early in the day so I can spend the day walking around. I'm a big walking per I like to walk the town. And sort of get a feel for it. And uh, and that day, my flight was delayed all day. And so I got there just before I went on stage. And so I said to my tour manager, who had gotten on a different flight, I go, what did you do today? He goes, I went to this place called, called uh, Goldie's. And they said the wait was going to be a 45-minute wait. And it ended up just being 20 minutes. And I was like, wow, you're a little cocky about your wait times, Goldie's. And uh, pull it back, you know. And so then I walk on stage and I and I tell the audience in Boise that story as though I had gone to Goldie's. 
And it killed. People laughed. The next morning, I wake up at the hotel. I, I walk to the concierge. I go, hey, which way should I walk to go to Goldie's? And he goes, you would know that if you had gone to Goldie's yesterday, like you told us you did last <laughs> night. And I realized at that moment that, that Boise is a, is a town that is too small to lie in. You that, can't that lie. You can't lie. In, yeah, you can't lie in Boise. Like Boise, too small to lie. <laughs> <laughs> you can't lie. There's not enough people. You can lie in New York like crazy, but you can't lie in Boise. Uh, so you started doing Zooms for a thousand people a number of months ago, and that must have been a real adaptation. I'm just going to try and crib from you, and maybe there are some folks who are watching this that sure. actually want to. Like, what are the best practices if you're actually going to do? Uh, Zoom comedy show for a thousand people because that must be a lift. And I feel like you're one of the only people um, maybe on the planet who can pull it off. So best practices are because I, I had directed two feature films, Sleepwalk With Me and Don't Think Twice. And so the first thing I thought was when I saw people doing Zoom comedy shows, I thought, I w let me watch what's out there. And I was like, OK, the, the two problems are that the, the, the lighting isn't great and the sound isn't great. And <laughs> which are a huge problem. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to call, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a, I play a, a recurring character on the show billions. Uh, and it's, it's actually a venture capitalist <laughs> from Silicon Valley. His name is Oscar Langstrat, but I'd, I'd worked with, uh, the cinematographer on the show, um, named radium and he's a brilliant guy and he's really nice. And I knew that he had filmed the movie Tangerine which, which I, I don't know if it was nominated for Oscars, but like Indie Spirits. And it, it, it was a really beautiful movie. And they shot on iPhones. And I knew that he had filmed it. And so I called Radium. I said, hey, can I pick your brain about this? And he sort of explained to me what you have to do essentially to hack an iPhone with lenses and this and that. This kind of, you know, most of it now, back then it was lenses. Now it's like apps. You know, it's like apps are doing the same thing. And the iPhones have gotten so sophisticated that you're getting in a, an extraordinary quality. And so I took my brother's or my office or my, me and my brother's office in, in Providence. And we put like a camera here, a camera here, a camera behind me, and then a camera in the corner. And they're all iPhones. They're all iPhones. And then we hired a cinematographer, a friend of Radium, this guy, Matthew Wolf. We hired him to remotely light the, the room. And so he would go, okay, take your light, take a 1K and put it here. And we go, okay. He'd go, move to the left a little. Okay, move to the left a little. And he'd go, okay, that, you know. And we, you know, it, took, it took days. It's not like it was easy. It took days. But, what, but just like a film set or a TV set, once it's done, and by the way, this isn't it. This is this I is me. That this this was is me. Not it, yeah, yeah. This is me That's in the home office. I concluded. <laughs> yeah, he's this talking is me. about another place. <laughs> this is me. Yeah, this, this is the home office setup. Uh, but uh, what Yegs Meek doesn't warrant the real thing, Mike. <laughs> Where is the quality lighting and the sound? Uh, um, I did. I have, I have one ring light right here, which is actually quite extraordinary. Yeah, I, me too, man. My ring yeah, light the, makes me feel like I, I delivered for the people. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, we did that. And then we just invested in, um, you know, just some decent microphones, some decent wireless microphones. And then we did a lot of 
We hired uh, a sound, a brilliant sound technician, this guy Jody Elf, um, who works in uh, you know on and off Broadway, to calibrate the levels on the microphone so that the sound would be just right. And uh, and that's all it takes. I mean, it's like it's not that hard. It's just a lot of legwork up front, and then basically it's don't touch anything. <laughs> Once you have the lighting in place and your levels are in place, just don't touch it. Uh, but yeah, and 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 I have to say, like my friend Sam Marill is a comedian. He's the one who said you should try it. And the reason, and the convincing argument. This is way back in June. I was like, ah, doesn't seem like it's for me. Feels like a hell gig to use the word that I, I used in my Vulture article. And he said, he goes, you know, it's really interesting. He goes, the people who show up aren't just people who are homebound from COVID. There are people who are homebound just from medical conditions in their life to begin with who would never go to a comedy show ever. And I thought, oh, well, that's reason enough. I mean, I then I should try that's a to crack argument. Yeah, I mean, I should try to crack this because if we're if there's a whole group of people who have medical conditions that are keeping them away from live performance, let me let's try to crack live performance. Like, why not? So, uh, what is the experience like relative? Because uh, must be very very different performing for iPhones that are mounted in various places. Yes. Versus, uh, you know, a live audience. Um, do you now feel comfortable? Like, uh, you know, and, and how would you compare one experience to the other? So we have sort of like around the room off camera is like, there's like an iPad. There's a screen that has like the Zoom participants. And so in different eye lines, I can see groups of people. And so, so interesting. So I'll go like, hey, Judy, I can see that you have a rabbit, you know? And then I go like, what you're kind doing of crowd work remotely. I do crowd work remotely. Yeah. And so I'll go like, Judy, like, like, is that a guinea pig or a cat? You know? And then she'll, and then the, the moderator will put her on with me. So we're split screen. And she'll go, oh, it's actually, a, it's a cat that sort of looks like a guinea pig and we call her guinea or whatever, you know? And, and then next thing you know, you're connecting with people who are literally ac across the world. I mean, five continents of participa participants, probably 30 countries. I mean, like this has been, it's, don't get me wrong. It's a hell gig. It's hard. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, it's, it isn't easy. These aren't ideal conditions. But there is a sense of community. And if you look at my Instagram, if you go to Apper Biggs and you look at my Instagram at the comments underneath the little video clips of the shows, you see people being like, this is the most I've laughed during the pandemic. Wow. It made me remember what it feel. I mean, I, 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 it's like it choked up. It makes me remember what it feels like to laugh. Wow. That's amazing, Mike. Imagine being able to bring that to thousands of people. Yeah, we keep we keep chipping away and trying to figure out like, how do we make the sound better? How do we make their sound better? You know, from their laughter. Cause we can hear, I can hear their laughter coming in. We have them all set their levels to 20%. And then like, if someone has like a dog barking or whatever, our moderator shuts off that sound um, channel. And uh, it's a whole, I mean, it's this, this organization called nowhere comedy club. And I think they do an amazing job. So how many people are working on your show, like in real time when you're there performing? Simultaneously, like probably about 10 to 15 people. Wow. That's what it <laughs> yeah. did. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, but there's they're actually an outfit that does it for other performers, Nowhere Comedy yeah. Club. So they do Sam Morrill. I mean, it was funny because I got an email from Gilbert Godfrey today saying, like, what do you think of these things? And 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 I'm I, I you know I I, I I talk to a lot of comedians about the experience because comedians don't want any part of it. They're sort of like, what is that? That seems horrible. And and the truth of the matter is, like Sam Morrill originally told me, I oh Sklar Brothers are doing it. Um, you know, the the truth is, there's a reward in it that is not what you expect, but is totally worth it. This is wonderful, Mike. It seems so entrepreneurial and human and solutions oriented and artistic. Um, I'm super pumped about it. And it sounds like I'm sure there are a lot of folks here um, that want to experience this. So and and I know you've been working on any number of projects uh, over the last number of months. How can people either attend this show, see what you're up to? Because you're a creative powerhouse. Like you probably have several things you're working on. Well, thanks, man. Um, if you go to burbigs.com, which is B-I-R-B-I-G-S.com, which is my nickname, uh, that has tickets to all six shows, Valentine's Weekend. Again, the Valentine's final- Valentine's Day date. I know. If you're perfect at for home, Val- you no, want to give your significant other a treat. Oh, it's great. And it's, you know, it's perfect for- I always say it's perfect for 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 people with, who have a date or people who don't have a date and want to have a thousand dates because um, it's it really is sort of a communal thing. And then my podcast is working it out, which is on Apple Podcasts. And like this week, we had Frank Oz. You know, we've had Ira Glass. We've had Maria Bamford. I mean, like uh, like uh, uh, Mulaney, um, sort of a murderer's row of comedians and artists. Um, and we work out new material because obviously I don't have an audience. And so I want to keep creating and, and work on new material. But uh, yeah, and I, but this has been great. I really have, I've really enjoyed talking. Me too, Mike. Yeah, again, you're, you're such an activist and artist and creative force. Such a pleasure for bigs.com. Who knows? Maybe <laughs> um, my wife and I will show up and uh, we'll be part if of you... the Valentine's Day crowd. I do owe We're... my wife approximately 1,000 dates. <laughs> like we are doing by the way we're doing we're doing thursday friday saturday sunday and i feel like we do this thing called the slow round so like for example like on my podcast every time we do it in the virtual shows too so we do a question like a memory from childhood like do you have a do, for example like do you have a memory from childhood that's always a, a, a on a loop in your brain but that you never tell as a story do you have anything like that my brother was climbing a tree and then he got his like leg stuck in the tree. Um, and then for whatever reason, I found it really funny. And, uh, and then, uh, but he was very upset. And then the people we were with um, helped him free his leg. Um, I did not help. I was, yeah. like, you know, being a brat. And then when he got down, he beat the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> that is... Uh... That is a perfect slow round answer. I feel like I'm going to email you and hit you up to be a slow round participant on the Valentine's weekend. And maybe you, maybe you have some kind of romantic story, maybe about meeting your wife or something like that. I'm sure I could, I I, I could uh, serve up something thematically appropriate. Um. (laughs) That seems great. Well, Mike, such a pleasure. Congratulations on bringing joy uh, and heart to so many people. And, uh, you know, like, I can't wait to see what you do next. Um, been a big fan of yours for a long time, a big admirer. 
Um, and I have a feeling uh, folks can see why just from this conversation. Uh, so thank you, brother. Hope you and the family are doing great. Same to you, Andrew. And I, I really admire what you've what you've been doing. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. And hopefully we can, you know, team up on some stuff. Would love that. Let's team up. Let's do it, Mike. It's going to be like super hero crossover. I'm Marvel. You're DC. I'm X-Men. You're Teen Titans. I don't know. <laughs> you kept making my version smaller than yours. You could have just the example. Totally arbitrary. You could have been the other way around. I'm Superman. You're Superman's dog. <laughs> You're Astro. <laughs> I don't even know what his name. <laughs> 